Hiya there, fam. I am so excited to be with y'all today because we are talking with Kim Vincenti, mama bear extraordinaire, whose work and tireless efforts have not only served on the front lines because of her love for her son with OCD, but it's also paved an incredible road for our tribe. So get comfy and get ready because Kim's story is a gift and I can't wait for you to hear more. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The OCD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Welcome back, fam. Welcome. If you're new to our family gatherings, hi, (laughs) you picked an excellent week to join. Because here at the OCD Family Podcast, we're all about providing support and resources to the OCD family community. I think we can all agree that our warriors are amazing, but something we talk about often here at this family table is how OCD really affects the whole family. It tortures our loved ones, our roommates, our daughters, our mothers, our sons and fathers, our lovers, spouses, partners, and it's devastating. So it can be hard enough to support our warriors as they battle, but y'all, We are right there with them, front line, in the trenches. So that is why we come here. That is why we laugh or cry or sing, sing, sing when we need to, because we are better together. So imagine my pure gratitude when I reached out to Kim, our sister of another mister, after seeing her accept this year's Hero Award for outstanding work and advocacy in the field by the International OCD Foundation, as one mother to another mother asking if she would be willing to hang out with us. She is so special, fam, and I know you're going to be so inspired and excited to hear about all the amazing things this mama bear has done and continues to do for our beloved OCD community. Also, something I love about the gift of hearing more about Kim's journey is she's not new to this war, the war with OCD. She's been in it longer than anyone would ever wish upon her and even more so for her son, Jack. It's been a long road. But because she has been battling with her son and so many other fierce fear fighters for upwards of 20 years at this point, she's also able to share her wisdom and experience both as a mother to a younger child suffering from OCD all the way into what it's like to have an adult child with OCD. So we thank her so much for being with us today, and we thank Jack, her son, because Jack, your courage in fighting this monster called OCD, it's provided invaluable hope to everyone else in this trench, waging war and clinging to hope. You're not alone. Thank you both. So let me brag on Kim just a little bit more, and then I want to dive right into this conversation because Kim's story is so impactful. 
Kim is the founder and president of the board for Jack MHA, that's Jack Mental Health Advocacy. And Kim is a mother. She's a wife. She's an OCD advocate, speaker, and a support group facilitator who has been working to help foster community and help families find the best resources for mental health education, intervention, and recovery. Until recently, she served as the president for OCD Jacksonville, which is an affiliate of the International OCD Foundation in Florida, here in the States. Kim is currently an IOCDF advocate, and she was honored as the hero that she is at this year's 28th International OCD Conference in San Francisco. Most excitingly, over the past 18 plus months, she launched Jack MHA to help expand her reach and continue to be a resource and a mom friend to sufferers and families across the nation. She is also a founding partner in the Natural Life Fearless Collection, which if you were in San Francisco or have been to any of the last couple in-person conferences, you've likely seen the Natural Life table in the conference expo. But Natural Life is a retailer that has a lot of really adorable, cute clothes and home and living accessories, a wide variety of boho-inspired fashion and design. And they partnered with Kim to create the Fearless Collection, where every purchase gives back to help provide education, empowerment, and reduce the stigma of anxiety disorders. So this is an incredible collection, and I was a fan of it long before I realized that Kim was connected with this. But there's such great education about anxiety, how common it is, the stigma, you name it. So you can check out Natural Life. I love, I love, I love the product line there. But knowing that behind the product line, is Kim, our fellow mama bear, our OCD advocate. It's so incredible. So I'm going to take this bragging into some chatting because I am so excited for you to hear more from Kim. So let's get to it. Hello, OCD family community. I'm so pleased that I can host today Kim Vincenti. And Kim, you have a powerful story. You're an IOCDF advocate. And you also have Jack MHA. We're going to talk all about that. But you have a really relatable story for our family here that tunes in because we are a community of loved ones and chosen family for those suffering from OCD. And so if you guys don't know of Kim, this is going to be a wonderful time to learn because she has such an inspiring story as does her son. And Kim, you and I, we both have sons named Jack. How about that? Is Jack your firstborn or is he your youngest? He's my second child. My Jack is my eldest and my Jack has OCD as well. And so we're going to be talking today about the story of how you got into OCD advocacy and really how this journey started for you. So if you wouldn't mind, can you tell me just a little bit about what things were like, what the family and what the interests were like before you realized OCD was on the scene? Oh, my gosh. We were just the average family chugging along. But in hindsight, and hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? Right. Jack showed signs of having OCD from the time he was probably three or four. He would 
roll Thomas the Tank Engine down the tracks. And it was that just right thing. All of a sudden, it didn't feel right. And he would get very frustrated and angry. And then he started doing this thing where he went, tap three times before he put Thomas down. And then he'd have to tap three times when he picked Thomas up. And there were all these little behaviors that, of course, came to light as OCD that we just didn't recognize. And he was functioning just fine until one fine day, it all blew up and OCD roared in, you know, like a a vicious dragon and kind of blew up his life within months. Yeah. So you're making a really good point that when we look back, we can see the pieces of OCD kind of wedging itself in to everyday life activities, to value-driven play, to all sorts of different things. But it wasn't interfering overall with the functioning and you're going, hey, each kid can have their quirks. My kids are autistic and they do some specific repetitive play as well. And so it's an easy thing to go, well, this might just be part of their natural learning because, yes, people are going to range in how they learn. And, yeah, you don't know what you don't know. It wasn't interfering with functioning at that time. So one fine day, it all blew up. So can you tell us a little bit about what happened that one fine day? So there was a bus that took kids of all grade levels to this school that our children attended. And my son had overheard this kid in high school. Now, he was just starting sixth grade, and he heard this high school kid bragging about smoking weed with his friends. And he was being very loud and obnoxious. And, of course, Jack had heard all the exhortations to say no to drugs and drugs are bad and everything else. And when this kid got off the bus, his arm rubbed against Jack's arm. Mm -hmm. And... Literally from that moment on, the compulsive washing started. Jack believed his intrusive thought was he touched somebody on drugs. Therefore, I'm going to get on drugs. Mm -hmm. And it started out contamination. So everything he touched that day was contaminated. Then everything at school started becoming contaminated. He was like a savant. He knew this kid's schedule and what classes he went to and what sidewalks he walked on and everything else. And it was in pretty short order that he wouldn't touch doorknobs to go into the classrooms. He wouldn't touch his books anymore. Most of our house became contaminated and it was all this drug trigger. And was he able to, it sounds like you guys have a pretty open relationship. Was he able to come verbalize to you right off the bat, like, I'm afraid that I'm going to get on drugs because of this? Or did you just notice the washing behavior first? Notice the watching behavior. He did not articulate. I don't think he figured it out. I don't think he really knew how to articulate what happened yeah. to him or his brain, you know, once that started. But it's shortly thereafter, then he stopped swallowing his own saliva. So he would go around like this and then until he could spit in a tissue or spit into the trash can because that his saliva was contaminated. And basically, we were a couple months into sixth grade and we were one of the few lucky people. We even back then got to an ERP therapist right away. But he was so sick, so fast, that she recommended an intensive program. And that's when we went off to intensive. Yeah. And get this under control. Because he literally couldn't go to school anymore. 
Right. His world was getting smaller and smaller in terms of what was safe and how he could avoid this terrible possibility that he could become a drug user. And so when you say ERP, just as a review for a newer fan, that's exposure and response prevention therapy. It is one of the gold standards used for the treatment of OCD. And like you said, back in the back in the day, because this would have been how how old was he? Yeah. 20 years ago. Like I said at, at the ISCDF conference in my little speech, I said it was the horse and buggy era. It was the uh, horse and buggy era. <laughs> and I feel like today OCD gets missed. Today, people don't know a ton about the treatment options unless you're already in this world or like happen to fall upon it while you're researching and researching it the right way. Like, what's the right way, right? But a lot of people don't know it's OCD. They think it's anxiety. They think it's depression. They think it's phobias. They think it's panic disorder. And so it's great that you were able to get in with an ERP therapist because ERP is the Division of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, but there is a lot that falls under the umbrella of CBT. And ERP is one slice. And it's not as familiar because it's utilized really with OCD. It's gaining traction with eating disorder and some other diagnoses as well. But it, it is the main treatment for OCD here in the States, especially. So we are really lucky if we stumble upon the right kind of practitioner not knowing. But like you said, intensive treatment was needed. What was intensive treatment like? Because it came on so strong before you could see the hindsight of all the things. What was that like going in, finding a therapist and then hearing, okay, he actually needs intensive, like this is so ramped up. Because I think from one of the articles that I read, you have to drive a decent distance to get to the intensive. Two two hours there, two hours back. Two hours there, two hours back. Every single day for the first round was like nine weeks or something like that. Oh, holy moly. And that's an intensive outpatient program that you were doing. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. This is before Airbnb, y'all. So it's not like you could just get an Airbnb nearby, right? And and they discouraged us from, uh, I mean, if we had a late session and then we're starting early the next day, we would occasionally stay in a hotel. But the hotel was vacation for him because the hotel room wasn't contaminated yet. Most of our home was contaminated. So they very much wanted us to have to go home every night and have him deal with those areas. Because it wasn't just the work that we were doing there. It was the work that we had to do at home to reclaim his world. Yeah, that's fair. You know, something that that kind of just reminded me of is, you know, when the pandemic hit and everything shut down, the mental health field and a lot of the medical field switched to telehealth. And one of the advantages of that was we were in a space that was often very triggering for folks which gave a lot of natural opportunities for exposure to the things that were so debilitating that OCD would use to trap a person in this lie and this trick that, you know, they might be this bad person. And so it is really helpful to be home, but it would be helpful too if the treatment center was 10 minutes away, not two hours. So that is a big commitment. The thing was, my daughter's four years older than Jack. And she had her first high school romance going on. And then I was having to leave all day long, sometimes not getting home till the evening. I felt like I was abandoning my other child. 
I was allowing a free-for-all if she were to take advantage of her. She didn't, and she was a, a wonderful child and very supportive of her brother. But I felt guilty the whole time that I was focusing 99% of my attention all the time on getting Jack well. And I had another kid at home. Yeah. Oh, and I that rings true with me because having three autistic kids with different varying levels of support needs and any special needs moms out there can say like, yes, if there is one kid or even a kid that is having the more intensive health moment just for a season, even where you need more intensive treatment, whether it's medical or mental health, it is really hard because that mom guilt is hard. It's reminiscent of when you bring that second baby home, right? And you're like cuddling and caring and feeding them. And then you're looking at your other child and you've been their entire world. And you're like, I don't know how to split myself in half. And of course, you grow and you absorb all the love and they love each other. And it's the best thing. But that is really hard. And you're describing that difficulty of, hey, we're committing to at least four hours in the car, let alone intensive ERP treatment. And homework when you get home. And homework. And you were probably worn out when you I got was. home. I was. And, and I was. And I thought I had prepared myself. I mean, I was one of those that I was going to learn everything about OCD. And I would stay out all night long, just combing the internet to learn everything I could. And I thought I got it about reassurance and accommodation. And I thought I was like on the fast track to be the smart mom about OCD. But what I experienced in intensive knocked me between the eyes. So all I can say is there's no way you can prepare yourself until you're in it. Yeah. And you know, one of the words you use, and I've heard clients use it as well. I know it is traumatic to go mm -hmm. from your living your everyday life to seeing your child in so much pain, feeling helpless to be able to do it. And then the treatment almost feels cruel in the beginning. It feels cruel if you're not aware, family, of ERP. I'm not saying that ERP is cruel. It ultimately can bring freedom <laughs> from OCD. But at the same time, it is a difficult treatment, not only for the sufferer, but it is a whole commitment for the whole family and loved ones, which this community knows so well because this is this is you guys. And it is really hard. So I don't know how much ERP you did with that therapist while waiting to get linked to intensive or was intensive really your first? So they very much encouraged the parent to be present the whole time. So we would learn the skills to implement at home. And I am, you know, ashamed to admit, but but not really. I had no experience in this, but when I saw my child so sick and in so much distress and intensive, I just kept crying and crying. And twice I was kicked out of the room by the therapist and told I was being unhelpful to the therapeutic process. And I was devastated. I felt so much shame because I wanted to be that mom that was going to get my boy well. You know, I was just doing everything I could. I was, I was tired. I was, you know, sitting driving. I was sitting trying to navigate the emotions and the trauma all around this OCD. And on top of it, I'm just this huge primary beat and I'm not coping well at the place. And that's when Dr. Eric Storch took me into his office and he was wonderful. And he really articulated in the clearest, gentlest way that 
I had to understand that there were things that I needed to learn and I needed to do. And those things would impact my son's recovery. And he probably will never know, even though I've tried to tell him how much that meant to me, because I realized that I'm not going to learn this overnight or staying up all night reading it on the internet. I'm going to learn this through the school of hard knocks. But there are tools that they can teach me that I can implement and they will have impact at home. And it was about consistency. It was about everybody being on the same page. It was about me learning and then my husband accommodating. You know, I I had to go home and share this information with the rest of the family that I was learning. And the light bulb went off. I saw that we are going to play a significant part in his recovery if we get game on and learn what we need to learn. Yeah. Dr. Eric Storch. So that's, yes, he was down in Florida before he went to Texas. Years and years and years years ago. Yes. For anybody who doesn't know, so Dr. Eric Storch was my mentor in my behavioral therapy training institute. So we used to meet a couple times a month, like six or seven in the morning because our calendars were crazy to try and coordinate. But he's also been on the podcast before, and he is really one of the premier researchers for exposure and response prevention. He's doing a lot of really good work and has done a lot to advance this field. But he also has a very gentle yet direct cadence that he can really lay it out. He knows ERP so, so well. And so I can imagine that that was really helpful. But I would also say, You were doing your best, and there is no shame in doing your best. You can't know what you don't know, right? And so even accommodation, you can think, oh, I'm not accommodating anymore. But it becomes such a lifestyle, especially before you realize that this little quirk or this little interaction was actually driven by OCD and has been for years for most of your kiddo's life. That's really hard because it feels like everything foundational to your relationship with your child, with your family member changes. And there's a grieving process that happens just like you were grieving, missing out on some of your older daughter's teenage love and experience. The dance that, you know, all the Yes, the semi-formals, the football games, the the pep rallies, whatever. Yes. But also there's that grieving process of going, I have been loving my person so much and it actually has been feeding OCD without me realizing it. That is a painful, grief-filled process. And, And though I think it's very easy for any of us to feel shame about it, I know me too. I'm an OCD therapist. I was like, I should have seen this shit coming up, which pardon, pardon my shit, but sometimes, mm, you know, and so it is, it is one of those things where self-compassion and giving yourself grace is so important because the reality is you were doing everything you could for Jack. And the fact that you cried because this was painful, those tears have a lot of meaning. Those are sacred tears. And you were still able to get the information you needed to pivot where you needed to pivot, to continue to love on him the best way you could possible. So there's no shame in that. I just want to say that because I get it as a mom. It is so hard. But at the same time, like you did, you did everything for him. 
and still today and for so many others that are suffering from this debilitating disease. I was just at the dentist this morning. I was getting a teeth cleaning, which for a parent of young children is like a spa treatment because I'm like, oh, this is lovely. It's quiet. No one's pawing at me. And I walk out with really super clean teeth. I feel fresh. But the hygienist was asking me, and I don't know how they understand what you're saying. I don't know. But she was asking me, do you work today? And I said, you know what? I kind of, I, I do a podcast. I'm going to be interviewing a guest later today. And she's like, oh, what's it about? I said, OCD. And she said, oh, is that debilitating? And I'm like, so, so much. Yes. It's not always, but if we're at a clinical level, absolutely. Absolutely. So in terms of you being there in intensive treatment, I don't want you to zoom in any more than you feel comfortable. But because I think people could certainly relate in this community, if you're willing to maybe even give details about one of those events, what was triggering the, oh, my gosh, this feels so counterintuitive to what I should be doing as a mother and experiencing that pain, as well as seeing your son in pain and feeling that pain? Would you mind describing a little more? I, I mean, to me, it, it, I'm still baffled that I lived through it, basically. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, the, the times that I was crying, we were just starting with low-level exposures because all his clothes were contaminated. All his shoes were contaminated. All his schoolwork was contaminated. So they were just trying to get him to put contaminated clothes on or a pair of shoes. And for him, up to that point, they were like paper towels. You, Once they got contaminated or dirty, just throw them away. And we were trying to get him through school in the early days and buying new shoes until I learned otherwise. But what really triggered me was when we had to start working on his primary trigger. And his primary trigger was a fear of marijuana. And when that boy got off the bus, from that moment on, Jack was contaminated and sure that he was going to get on drugs because of that contact with that boy. And things spiraled out of control and we landed in intensive. So in intensive, we started with that hierarchy and just going to things that were contaminated and trying to gain exposure. But then he just wasn't getting better. So for example, our exposure bag, traveling there and traveling home, by the way, through one of the most notorious police traps for speeding ever, I've had exposure bags. And in my exposure bag was rolling papers, Weave World magazine. I had paraphernalia. I had hemp rope. I had granola bars with head. I had every exposure to marijuana short of the marijuana. Uh-huh. So we, we burned hemp incense and intense. We did all of these things, but he just wasn't getting any better. You know, like three weeks, four weeks in, they said, he's just not getting any better. We've got to go for these things that scared him. So what did I do? Go One night, I went out and cut some weeds. And I got this little tiny bag of weed. And I was driving home in my car, just shaking my damn head like, how is this possible? I'm out cupping weed for my son to take to intensive. And it was an extraordinary moment and one that completely blew my mind at the time. But we started with like just showing him the baggie, getting him to hold the baggie. Obviously, we never burned the the marijuana there, but we actually got him to deal with the contaminant. 
And he did get better enough after a very long period of time to go back to school. But that trigger stayed for forever, almost. It it stayed through college. And imagine you're in a high school campus, a college campus. It's everywhere. And finally, I guess I'll I'll recap the story. He wanted to move post-college to Los Angeles. And marijuana is legal there, right, on everywhere. And we had had trouble with him being exposed to it when he did a semester out there in college. And so I said, look, I am not going to sanction you moving to California unless you show me you are well and truly over this contaminant. So our family went to Colorado, where it is also legal. legal. And Jack and I went to the dispensary together and we got some weed and we smoked together. And that was true that he could go to California and live an independent life. But he's doing great. He's amazing. But it took, what? 16 years or something to get over that trigger. Yeah. You know, the insidious nature of OCD through those 16 years, OCD changes up and tortures and he would get those new intrusive thoughts and they were clearly OCD. He didn't always identify, especially as a child, he didn't identify those as new OCD triggers. That was, you know, kind of on me to say, is this OCD or is this just life? And yeah, it's confusing. Yeah. And that brings up a really good point, because I can think of some families that I've worked with and even for our own family, I've had to do this at times where we have to zoom out. Usually we're zooming in, but we've had to zoom out and go, not everything in life is OCD, even if it's a yucky thing, right? Like that doesn't necessarily mean it's OCD. And you can get so in the lens, especially in the beginning of putting everything under the microscope and going, Mm, this sounds like OCD, then I'm not going to accommodate it. I don't know if you were like this. Now, I learned I was OCD after the fact. So I was doing this to an OCD level because what if I don't catch it and my kid ends up suffering more because of me? I couldn't live with myself, blah, 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 right? But I think even if you don't have OCD, as a mom, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but as a mom, that's kind of where we're at. That's the mama bear mentality. That's just like, I will do anything. You think and, and you're just hypervigilant. You're hypervigilant because you want to fix that thing. Yeah. And what I heard is I can play my part and I can play it well. But in the end, it's him that has to do the work. It's him that has to define how this goes. All I can do is my part and do it to the best of my ability, but yeah. I can't fix it. And a mama bear wants to fix it. A mama bear wants to fix it. It's funny because my husband, listen, he's so kind to listen to every podcast. So he's going to be like, uh-huh. There'll be times where I will say to him, I don't want you to fix it. I just want you to hear me, right? I'm like, oh, blah, blah, blah. I just needed to say that. And he's coming up with solutions. I'm like, no, no, that's not what I need. <laughs> right? But then as mom, you're like, no, I, I seeing your child in pain and not only tolerating, but accepting that pain as a part of the process is so hard. And learning that our attempts to provide a sense of safety and protection can also prolong that pain is also really hard. And so that is part of the process of what we learn about when we're doing ERP. And it is very tough. Because you're not only doing it in therapy, you got to practice it at home where the triggers are usually more, as we were talking about a, a little earlier, or if he's going back to school, now he's going back into this contaminated school area and he's going to have to really take that on. And unfortunately, 
taking that on in this model means exposing yourself to it and resisting the compulsion. And so you do the compulsion, even as a parent, because you want to protect. That's essentially what the sufferer is doing anyway. They're trying to protect themselves and others from this dangerous, bad, intrusive. It's called intrusive for a reason. Terrible thing happening. And so I've heard many clients come in and say, I feel like you're saying jump out of the plane, but it's compulsive to use the parachute. And so we're just going to do that and see if we die. And that feels really scary. But also when you realize there's not actually a plane. And so you're right. We are going to jump and we're not going to wear a parachute. We're yeah. just jumping then. We're, we're on the ground, right? It was a thought. But it's really, really hard. And it is such a difficult process to describe. I think if I had heard it before doing it or being a parent doing it, I don't think I would have understood. I would have been like, that sounds awful. Who would do that? But I wouldn't understand the gravity of it until you're actually in the exposure and you're going, oh, this is really, really hard. Um, mm -hmm. If it were easy, it's how we would have responded in the first place. We wouldn't have bought the shoes or, or whatever. The simple little things in the beginning that was like, OK, rerun your train till it feels right and then let's go. And so it is it's a big challenge. So now Jack is he's going to be 30. OK, 30. I love 30s. I bet 30s. I mean, I'm not in my 30s anymore, but I loved that decade. <laughs> and by the way, Jack is now a therapist. And is he? Yeah. Where did, and did he go to school in LA? He went to Shepherdine. So Jack's an actor and he's still doing that and living in Los Angeles, doing commercials and things like that. But over COVID, he's just like, he's always had the interest and he's like, let me just go to graduate school. And so he did it. And yeah, now he's, you know, just earning those 3,000 hours towards licensure and yeah, I know. but yeah, he's, he's done amazing, but you know, I, I don't want to take one minute of effort away from him. I, I tried to do my best, but boy, did he work hard. Oh, yeah. He had worked hard to stay on top of his wellness and it hasn't always been easy. It's been just horrific at times, but he is. He is my hero. That's amazing. Jack, good job. And I moved here from L.A. I'm very familiar. Pepperdine's a beautiful campus. I went to, when I was in graduate school, which I went to in Pasadena, I remember going to a baseball game at Pepperdine where I was like, if I went to undergrad here, I was very studious, so I probably would have gone to class. But I was like, I don't know if I would have ever gone to the class because the view here is just <laughs> priceless, right? Although there is a big price tag, so it's not actually priceless, but it is a it's a great school. And I love I love that area. And so, yeah. And there are some unique triggers even to being in L.A. and in the industry. My husband used to be in the industry and it is a very tough breeding ground. And if OCD is also breeding there, it's really difficult. And so I love that he's doing really well. I would agree, too. So my Jack. We actually just went on vacation. Actually, you and I were both just recently away, but we happened to be in L.A. My Jack was born there and we went on a cruise and we went to Disneyland and saw some friends and we had a great time. But Jack asked me at dinner last night, what was your favorite part of vacation? And I said, there were some moments where you fought OCD so so well and in ways that i've never seen before it was literally it makes me want to cry even thinking about it now 
we went to Disneyland. We went on a cruise. We saw friends. I love all those things. And my favorite moment was watching you not be imprisoned by fear that OCD typically would do. And you were like, you know what? I'm just going to try it. And then you tried it and you loved it. And you're like, OCD's a liar. And I'm just going to keep doing this. I mean, exactly. it was a water slide on the cruise ship. And he was like, but I'm going to drown. Has he ever drowned? No. Does he know anybody that's drowned? Thankfully not. And I know it does happen and it's important to learn. But this was an OCD lie that if I go on this water slide, I'm going to drown. And he chose it. And then he did it like 50 times because he was like, Mom, I wouldn't have had any of that fun if I listened to OCD. And it was a moment for me where I was like, this is priceless. This whole vacation, nothing can compare to this moment as a mom of going, my kid just got part of his life back. And if that's true here, then where else is that true? That is the momentum that builds around those moments, too. And so it's like it was a powerful opportunity, probably just like. You probably never thought you would be in Colorado smoking pot with your son. But to see that moment come full circle and go, he's going to be okay. He's going to have to battle. And the battles make him strong in so many ways. You, you know, I mentioned of being an actor. He was telling me this one day he was at an audition and he saw this other actor outside and he was pacing and he was sweating and he looked just nervous as hell. And she never gets nervous at an audition or anything else. Like the stress of that is so nothing to him compared to ERP, right? It, he, he was like, man, that guy's got to get a grip. And I said, but your fears are different. But it has made him strong in extraordinary ways. This thing I posted on my last Mom Monday Instagram post. Jack went rock climbing in New Zealand. He loves adventure. Everything super dangerous to do. He loves, and I wanted him to be afraid of those kind of right. And he's not. He's not afraid of these extreme sports and things like that. And and it's just goes to show you an OCD brain is an OCD brain, and you cannot define what it's going to tell you. Yeah, it shows what a hypocrite OCD is. Because you're like, hey, Jack, you could use some fear over here. Like, as, <laughs> yeah, your, exactly. as your mother, this is the appropriate time to freak out. And he's like hang gliding or something. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, it is, it is amazing to see those growth moments. And so I wonder, you know, you have the unique experience knowing that it was OCD. Because sometimes people don't know it was OCD. If they don't get hooked up with the right people and linked with the right kind of therapist and the right kind of treatment early on. But you happen to know it was OCD in his childhood, and now he's an adult. He's, he's almost or just turned 30. And so can you describe, because we've definitely talked about parents of young kids, but we've talked about parents of older kids too, some of the challenges in the shape-shifting, because you noted OCD doesn't just disappear. It morphs. It's sneaky. It shows up in these other different ways. Can you talk about what it was like going from someone that had a little more control and autonomy over the situation as the parent of a minor child and what it's been like as a parent of an adult child with OCD? Well, it's difficult because now I have the added layer that he's a therapist. So I probably can't stop. And I, I still can read that hallway better than anybody. Uh-huh. And I think for the most part, he would agree with that. But yeah, he doesn't necessarily want need to tell him what he needs to do or how he needs to do it or who he needs to see and why. But there's also when you know for sure that OCD is 
trickling in. And I've been told plenty to butt out that it, it especially my adult kid, that it's, it's, it's his job to decide how hard he's going to work to get rid of that new thing or how he's going to deal with this OCD. And it's just hard as a mom to keep your mouth shut. Now, I am fortunate that Jack usually will engage in conversation with me and he's very kind. The people I think I feel the most compassion for are the parents with treatment-resistant kids because Jack, I think, learned from an early age how much OCD could debilitate him and he had to work hard a number of times to get back. And I think he understands that he needs to work hard those families that deal with kids that are very, very sick and will not get better or do evidence-based treatment, you know, behind crystals in their window, but they don't do the hard stuff. I mean, I, I have so much empathy and compassion for them. I, I would like to say that I have an answer for them because the bottom line is they got to wait until their kid's ready to get better. And I think just putting those boundaries around what you're going to do to support them as an adult, like letting them stay sick and living in your home and paying all their bills is not really helping. Right. And we learned little tricks like that all through high school and college. In college, Jack met a trigger. He was going to a workshop in Atlanta and he got a very scary intrusive thought. In fact, I, I don't think he would mind saying it was when the first Ebola patients were landing in Atlanta. Okay. And of course, they were being taken from the airstrip to Emory and isolated and everything else. But all of a sudden, he got an intrusive thought that it would be scary to go to Atlanta. And he had this study abroad trip coming up. And he was like, I'm not going to go to that workshop in Atlanta that was for school. And I said, you know what? If you don't go to that workshop in Atlanta, I'm not paying for New Zealand study abroad trip. And so, you know, he had a choice. He really wanted to go to New Zealand. And so he went to Atlanta that he hit it hard in the moment and that trigger never came back. He was never worried about it again, but it, you know, OCD had had its way. He wouldn't have gone. Right. And if OCD had its way, he would still be worried about Ebola in somewhere in the background. It's not as common. It comes up, but you know, there's a recall at Trader Joe's on spinach because we think we, whatever, then he might not have spinach again or Trader Joe's or whatever. Read about. I mean, this is what's, you know, COVID is done for sufferers or AIDS did back in the day. I mean, whatever it's the thing of the moment, you know, bird flu or whatever. I mean, people with OCD get terrified of it. It's an unexpected thing to happen with an OCD. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, you're using some of the current facts out of context when you're with OCD and OCD loves to twist a fact out of context. This happened somewhere. <laughs> My son, Jack. We love our Jacks. Jacks are amazing. We're impressed by you, Jacks. But my poor Jack was having a medication change, and we noticed some heightening while we were cross-tapering, which was to be expected of some of his anxiety and intrusive fears. And he was pounding on the wall in his room or something. It's like 1130 at night, way past his bedtime. And so I went in there. He's full sweats, all this, just panicked. And he was like, I think there's a serial killer that's going to come in. And I'm like, right, because it is nighttime, right? This is an ERP therapist in me, this poor kid. But yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, because they like to do their things at night, I guess. They're like, they're day sleepers, apparently. But 
He's so smart. And and this is the thing. A lot of OCD folks that I meet are so bright and so amazing brains that figured out how to build a rocket and land men and women and people on the moon, created all these things, can create some pretty intrusive, terrifying thoughts. And so he has an iPad. He does not have it linked to the internet because we gotta, you know, be monitor all internet stuff, uh, especially in this day and age. But he figured out if I dictate something to Siri, even though it won't show me the web page, Siri will tell me the answer if if Siri has an answer. And so he asked Siri, "How many serial killers have there been in Indiana?" And Siri gave him the stats. Then it was like, when was the last time? What happened? And so he was so freaked out. And he was like, mom, you don't get it. There have been serial killers in Indiana. And I'm like, I'm sure there have. I get it. Yeah. And no matter how much you think about this, you're still not going to be certain. And you know what? That's okay. We can go to we can go to bed. It's past bedtime. And ERP definitely has this lean into it flow. And it's hard when we're looking at value driven, like a lot of times we talk about having value driven exposures and we want to do things that allow us to engage in our values. So the value of your Jack going to New Zealand was worth the discomfort of booking and flying and going into Atlanta until he forgot about it because OCD didn't win that one, right? That's very, very key because I think the success of his treatment is all about living his values. I mean, he is determined not to let OCD rule his life. And so whenever there's been a really tough time in his life, he's gone for what matters to him. And that's required him to do some pretty hard work. But that whatever that carrot that we're dangling out there is what he goes for. Thank God. Yeah. And so the value-driven thing is really important. But there are certain things that in certain kind of intrusions that OCD brings up where obviously we would not recreate it. We would not think a racist remark as an intrusive thought and then be like, okay, well, I'll go practice being racist five times and see if if I am or not. Like, you're not going to do that. You're not going to engage in any pedophilia. You're not going to engage at the time when he was a kid. You weren't smoking the pot. You got the pot. And at that time, that probably was a real rub for you because marijuana was not legalized anywhere in the U.S. at that time. So you're like, I'm literally buying illicit drugs to help my son be able to go to sixth grade. Right? Yeah. And that's so can we talk a little bit about engaging in some of the struggle around like trying to engage for the value of doing something for your kid, but also the the spot that puts you in having to go engage in a transaction you never thought you'd be engaging in at a time where it was very illegal. Like what was that process like for you as mom going like, How do I weigh out? Obviously, I want to do anything for them. And also, like, how does this fit in my value system? Well, my value was I would do anything for my kid. That's where that mama bear comes up. You know, you will kill the predator. And for me, the predator was OCD. And I was, I was really wigged out. I got to tell you, because like you said, back then it was, it was a whole different time. But I knew, I knew we had, we had just invested six weeks to know positive change. And I knew that we had to get to that root trigger. And so the mama bear and me just said, 
my kid is worth anything. Yeah. And I'll do anything to get better. And and that's why I tell other parents, this is just not a battle. We're in this for the war. And so you're going to have to turn up time and time and time again and just be in it for the long haul. Never, never, never give up. And and run up my hands and said, oh, I don't know what to do. But I was willing to try that next thing that might help. Yeah. And and I think that's what that's what you do when you love completely. I loved him so much. He's the coolest, most amazing man now. And I'm so thankful that we fought together as a family for him because he's worth it. And I and I knew it then. And I knew it then. And there was nothing I wouldn't have done for him. Yeah. I mean, another example that it kind of reminds me of that's very common is, you know, folks might have an intrusive thought. What if I heard somebody with a knife or a sharp object? So now all the scissors, all the knives, everything needs to be out of the house or locked up where I can't get access to them. Because what if I could accidentally hurt somebody? And the ERP exposure might be like, okay, we're going to use this knife and we're going to cut an apple. Right. And now maybe we're going to cut a gingerbread man. It looks like a person or whatever. And and you think like, okay, as you're sitting there baking your gingerbread, getting that sharpening knives, giving it to the kid who wouldn't harm a fly. It's this intrusive fear that what if they could? But these are usually like the most mild mannered, like would not want to hurt anybody. That's why they're so tortured by the intrusiveness of OCD, because they don't want to do harm to anyone themselves or others. And you go, okay, so this is value driven. I'm giving them a knife and saying, let's chop this gingerbread man into pieces. Right. And ERP, it just really can feel like, is this in my value system? Well, yeah, you don't need to go actually cut a person. We're not saying go go cut a person and see how that really feels. Oh, no, we didn't. No, it wasn't value driven. Okay, I guess OCD is wrong. We would never do that. But some of the ERP homework can be very, very challenging. And so I like how you describe that too, of like just really embracing the distress because that's what the sufferer is learning how to do as well. They're learning how to tolerate the distress and embrace the uncertainty and roll with it. One of the things that I've been learning about recently, and I don't know if you've heard much about it. Have you heard anything about inference-based CBT or experienced any form of ICBT? Practice, but I'm learning more and more and more about it, talking to more and more people than when they were unsuccessful with ERP, ICBT really has helped. And we actually published an article by a suburb that did not do well with ERP, but had significant benefit from ICBT. So yeah, I, I, I think we explore anything that works. Adding a little ACT in there is very helpful. I mean, that was, ACT was, I had to accept that Jack was not well. I had to learn to accept that I'm going to be uncomfortable. I had to accept uncertainty if he was going to get back in school in time to finish the year or what's going to happen down the road. I had to learn all of that. And, you know, I think mixing all that together, whatever works is a blessing in the end. For any family experiencing this, explore the options. Explore the options. Yeah, and I know Biohaven's doing a clinical trial on a medication specifically for OCD, I believe. And it's it's an exciting time. There's definitely different treatment options being proposed. And yeah, I mean, it is, it is ACT, ACT, as you were describing it. That's acceptance and commitment therapy. 
has a lot of that very, it's very saturated with that value-driven ideology, mm-hmm. which I think is really important because as we were saying, like, you were saying for your Jack and for my Jack, my Jack was like, I want to have fun on the screws. I want to go have fun at Disneyland. I want to go have fun on the airplane. Things that, you know, before he'd be like, but what if Russia shoots us down? I'm like, well, that would be a surprise. And I guess we'll see. It's an ERP response. But we've recently, so I've been learning about ICBT too as a clinician just to be able to offer that as hope and also understand it. And it's really unique. It's so different than ERP. It's really hard to wrap your mind around until you learn it. But with that same example the other night, it was really interesting because I thought in my ERP training, I would have been like, you're right. Serial killer might come. I guess we'll roll the die here and see. You know, maybe it's a knife for murder, but you know, and on the other hand, you wouldn't have to take out the trash tomorrow. So there's the positive silver lining with whatever. But yeah, I guess we could be murdered tonight. That was kind of the place and the space we lived in within ERP. And with ICBT, we're also able to go, okay, how are we using the logic, the reasoning error? of the fact that there have been serial killers in this state before as proof that there's serial killers in our house, let alone in your room, because obviously nighttime, serial killer time. But we looked around and we saw no evidence and literally changed the channel here. And it was interesting to me. And I thought, how wonderful that we do have options, right? Because before it would have been like, Let's get killed. Hey. (laughs) And that sounds, again, if you've never done ERP, you're going to be like, (laughs) but in going, I'm going to live my life, even if I might accidentally hurt somebody, if I might accidentally do drugs, I might accidentally become this intrusive fear that I don't want to become that would be the worst possible version of myself. And it's just so lovely to have options where we can look at ACT, we can look at ERP, we can look at ICBT, and hopefully medication support. As we already know, SSRIs can be really helpful for treating OCD, but having specific medicines now that are even in clinical trials is huge. That's huge. So exciting. So exciting. So why don't we talk about how this has brought you to today? Because you have a nonprofit organization that really, you it's pretty young, but it embodies the work you've been doing for many, many years now. Would love for you to share more about Jack MHA. Well, thanks. Well, my advocacy started first for my son, obviously. And then I was in our channel, the go-to mom, like everybody's like, oh, your kid has OCD. And her, Kim Vincenti, she's been down this road. And so I was constantly getting phone calls and really developed a network of parents in the Jacksonville area that were experiencing OCD in their house. So I started leading a family support group for caregivers and family members of sufferers. And then I joined OCD Jacksonville, which is an IOCDF affiliate. And I served as both vice president and president. And we did some like really cool, remarkable things that I know we're all proud of. But I'm in a season of life. I've got grandchildren in California now. Another Jack. My eldest grandson is Jack. And so my husband's going to retire soon. And we have a home in Puerto Rico. And so I wanted to be able to do advocacy there or in California or wherever I find myself. So I decided to start my own nonprofit. And I'm thrilled to say that in basically 18 months, 
We've been doing some really amazing, remarkable and bucket list things. And I think just all my time in the OCD community, I've been able to observe and I've been able to see where the holes in the system are. Yeah. And I'm just trying to fill them with whatever I can. And we've got some amazing initiatives started. We've done some really cool things, for example, in Puerto Rico. My husband's Puerto Rican, and I know from family members there that there were no clinicians. And so one of our very first initiatives was to sponsor the first Spanish language BTTI. And so we got a a number of Puerto Rican clinicians trained, and we are hosting Dr. Storch and the UNC Chapel Hill Genetic Latino Study in Puerto Rico in September to further the study and just kind of build on those connections there. So I'm really thrilled about that. But we we do conference scholarship. We are looking to do a BTTI for military clinicians. Jacksonville is a huge military town and we yeah. get calls all the time from military families saying, hey, these military clinicians don't know how to treat my OCD or my child's OCD. And so that's a bucket list thing that I've got coming up. But one of the things that we launched at the conference is in my years at OCD Jacksonville, we supported Fear Facers Camp at University of Florida. And it was written up in the New York Times. And it was just really one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen. And if early intervention is everything and parents are, tend to be reluctant to send their kids to intensive How about sending them to camp where they're there all day and getting evidence-based care? And so we we did an endowment to support fear facers, but I kept thinking to myself, this should be everywhere. And so we had a meeting at the conference with all the affiliates and Jack Mental Health is going to give a significant trash donation to two to three IMCDF affiliates to plant a fear facers similar camp in your region. Awesome. So that's, that's one of the things we're working on right now as well. Oh, and yeah, so Plant the Camp is really my heart's desire to yeah. be half short term. But we have an access to care program where quarterly we release scholarships for those that do not have access to evidence-based care or don't have the funds to pay for it or insurance won't cover it. Working with a group of uh, evidence-based care or clinicians in different regions throughout the country. And we provide 56% of 16 sessions for them to get something that they otherwise would have no care at all. That is great. Oh my goodness. I got goosebumps. That is so exciting. And you know what? You brought up a really good point too, because often these intensive cares, even outpatient treatment can get pretty pricey, especially if your insurance doesn't cover it. And so we're talking about the financial costs of going back and forth, the mileage and the oil changes on the car or whatnot, but also the cost of care can be so much. And not clinicians are out of network because, you know, insurance companies aren't paying anything to keep the light on and the rent paid. Right. And what I, what I experience is clinicians have a part to do pro bono work, but they simply can't afford it because reimbursements are low. Overhead is high. And so we wanted to create a way that we can get people here that would otherwise get nothing. And obviously that is a huge financial suck. And we can't always promise that we'll have scholarships available, but we have given away quite a few already. And we're really excited about 
the work we've done because we've asked those clinicians to give us updates, like a start of treatment and conclusion. And and in 16 sessions, they're getting the psychoeducation that they need. They're getting a basic protocol to follow moving forward. Yeah. And I can't treat anybody over a lifetime. Most people are going to need more than that. But for that person, they, otherwise we get nothing. It's everything. Right. And, well, and you know, you mentioned how you're going to be partnering with the Latino Studies. So Eric was talking about that with us last season. I believe it was episode 12, fam, if you want to check it out in our research roundup. But we were talking about the Latino Study, and I believe they're still taking participants, or if you're willing. But one of the things, too, that made me think of is sometimes if you live in an area and you can look up here in the States, you can look up the NIH, you can look up, and I'll put a link on this episode's blog post. But if there are clinical trials running through, sometimes if you happen to be in close enough proximity or within the state or whatnot and able to participate, that is a way that you can also access treatment. But for a lot of folks that, again, maybe live states away and you have to be in the border of Texas or wherever they're running the study, that's not a possibility. And so this is such a wonderful opportunity then to have part of your therapy funded And you think about it, a lot of people are like, I don't want to go to another state or the other side of my state or another country to even have to access care. But at the same time, people do that for cancer. They do that for other things. And this is debilitating. Some people might not think it's life-threatening in that way, but it can be. It can be life-threatening when someone is so debilitated and so hopeless that they're going, I just want the noise to stop. Like, we need to protect people in that situation. So the fact that you have a program and so many plans here to be able to help people access care, it's so huge. So thank you for everything you guys are doing. The other two things, we did two sponsorships with the IMACVF that are going to kick off this fall. One is a training video series for graduate level students. What we've discovered and the reason people often fall through the tracks is graduate level programs barely talk about OCD right. and they, they don't talk about the treatment of OCD. So we want to create a video series that can be shared with graduate level programs so that they know going out into the world that there is a treatment protocol that is extremely important for them to know how to identify and treat OCD. So we're sponsoring that through the IMCBF. And the other thing that I'm very excited about that I think you would be a perfect guest for and excited about is we're sponsoring a live stream for family and caregivers with the IMCBF. Yes, I would love that. (laughs) That's us, right, fam? (laughs) She's like, hey, you. That's great. More resources for the fam. I mean, there's live streams for sufferers and live streams for special interest groups or spectrum disorders. But you don't see anything coming out for families except for like your podcast and when they're in family and caregiver conference, you know, events happening. But this will be something that people can go to their social media and take in. Yes, I love that. I know that NoCD and IOCDF are two that just really pop to mind that do utilize live streaming options. And I love live streaming because you don't have to catch it live to benefit from it. You can go back and watch it at any time. But if you are there live, you can even ask questions sometimes with amazing experts and advocates like yourself. And it's so great. So I love that. 
That's wonderful. The more content we can get, the better. And I'm sure Jack told you when he went through his therapist training school, like, yeah, OCD is like a slide in a psychopharmacology class. It's a slide. It's a slide. Yeah. It's alarming. It is alarming. And it's underdiagnosed. The stat, and I don't know if it's updated since then, but it was that it was 14 to 17 years from the date of onset of symptoms. So you think people are living a significant chunk of their lives. I know I didn't realize that I had OCD until I was in my 40s. So, and I treated OCD at that point. And so it is a very difficult issue to educate people when they don't see the prevalence of the problem because the problem's underdiagnosed, right? And so educating people who are diagnosing, very, very important. And so I'm really excited to hear about that. And I only hope that the graduate schools will be like, yes, we'll take more than a a class period to talk about this. We'll look into the training materials. So I love that. That's going to be so, so powerful. The whole advocate program can really go to work. Advocate in California, advocate in Ohio, advocate here. Take this to your regional schools and tell them about this and encourage them to have their graduate students watch it. Um, it's going to take people kind of beating the drums a little bit, but the only way we're going to affect changes is to be loud and proud of what we're doing and that there are options and resources out there that are being utilized. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it continues to grow and the work that you're doing is such a huge piece to that. You mentioned the affiliates like OCD Jacksonville, of which you were vice president and president. But there are a number. If you're if you're anywhere in the States, chances are your state, if not your city, if you're in a bigger city or region, might have a specific affiliate. Also worldwide, this is an international foundation, but there are also organizations like OCD UK, and I'm thinking of one in Australia, where they are doing work. They're not specifically with IOCDF, but they're doing work. There's the PAN. In Canada, they're doing, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm on a task force called OCD in the Brain with UC London, and their neuro researchers are creating a platform to really explain what's happening in the brain when you have OCD. And they were working in tandem with the IOCDF and IOCDF affiliates or advocates to just gather information. And I love how the OCD community really works together yeah. and really is kind and loving and supportive. I really have rarely ever been part of a community that has the level of graciousness and kindness that I've seen. Oh, I agree. I mean, I was in a different specialty before I landed in OCD and got really absorbed into it. But word travels quickly. And when there's not anyone around you really treating OCD and you're the one person, you start to see people from all over. But what I will say is it is really a generous field. I have you're taking this time out of your busy schedule to come be on the podcast. So many people have been so gracious. And that was really where the idea for this podcast came to be because I was at a BTTI and I'm like, I meet with Eric every month. I have a handful of experts in a group that we're just like, we're talking cases, we're doing different stuff. And it's like, wow, like I have an incredible resource here. If I could share that with the fam here and everyone is so giving, you'll see a lot of people with lived experience, family members. 
researchers, educators, all on those live streams, all around. IOCDF is a great resource. So is ICBT.online and in different countries. Now, one area I would like to see, and we've talked a bit about this on the podcast, and we've mentioned it even a little bit with Puerto Rico, right? Because I went to the online conference last year. Why we should be talking about Bruno was a session I went to, and there was a young lady in there from Puerto Rico that was like, I couldn't even access treatment unless I came to the States. And so, so powerful and important for our BIPOC community and other countries where this reach is just non-existent. It's so important for us to continue to spread the word and facilitate that. So you mentioned the Latino study. I'll put a link to the Latino study too on the blog post here. That would be great. And and just a shout out to anybody in Puerto Rico that knows or loves anybody with OCD. We want to be collecting your saliva and <laughs> we'll be sharing a flyer for the visit with Dr. Storch and UNC Chapel Hill, Jim Crowley, the geneticist in Puerto Rico in September. So yeah, that's great. And you know, like, again, you and I talked about we don't know what was OCD until we knew what was OCD. Hindsight's twenty twenty, But you look at different things. When you look at the culture within your own family, let alone your own cultural upbringing, your ethnic culture, your regional culture, it's very different. I know I'm in the Midwest right now. LA culture, very different than the Midwest culture, as you know, with Jack being out there. But what I would say is, yeah, sometimes people don't even know this is OCD that's been generations within my family because there is certain things that aren't talked about outside of your culture, whether it's your family culture or your ethnic culture. And it's it, it's such an important thing for us to continue to break down the stigma regarding it. And so you are a hero in that she received the Hero Award this year at IOCDF conference. And you are a hero in that you are doing so much not just for Jack. And you did, whether you left crying or not in a session, I, I stand by my word, you were doing everything then and you continue to do it. You have made such a difference in the same way that you said for Eric, he may never know the impact. The ripple effects of what you're doing, Kim, is just unbelievable. So thank you so much for everything that I you do. I it because like you, you just fall in love with the community of people and yeah, absolutely. it was a way. Absolutely. Well, on, on, a, on a closing note here, can I ask you, so when you were in treatment for about a month or so and they were like, Jack is not getting better, and this was intensive treatment at this point, can you give a note to our listening community, because I'm sure that there's people out there going, I relate so hard to that, that are having such a struggle maintaining hope. Because you had to stay in it, and it was hard, hard stuff, and you were having to stay in that and believe that there was going to be some kind of light at the end of this tunnel for him. And so can you give any encouragement or notes to our families listening to those other mama bears and father bears and grandma bears and all of that? out there going, I want to keep hope, but it's so hard because we are just hitting walls here with treatment. Do you have any inspiring words for them? Just again, OCD is a war you're going to fight and you just got to take it battle by battle. And one of Jack's teachers gave me a plaque with the quote by Winston Churchill on how to win World War II. And he quite simply said, Never, never, never give up. And I mean, that's kind of how I looked at, it. you know, it was, okay, it's really bad right now, but 
it's going to get better. It's going to get better. And then, you know, it ebbs and flows, but the trajectory still tends to go up. And I just think that if you can ride out the storms, I mean, we live in Florida, there's hurricanes all the time, right? Yeah, I just ride it out and you clean up afterwards and there is going to be another storm. Of course there is, but you can't think that A, you're going to fix it or B, anybody's going to fix it. You just have to supply all the love and support and instill your belief that they can and will get better. Yeah. They to know you believe it. Yeah. And our experience for me is just proof that God answered some mother's prayers. Believe me. I mean, I tried pouring a tumbler of wine when I got home from intensive and hoped that it would be a distant memory by morning. That didn't work. But I was on my face just praying and hoping that he would do better or do well. And he has. And he has, yeah. but it's taken all of us believing that it will and not expecting it to happen tomorrow or the next day or next month or maybe even next year, but it's a life commitment. Just like it would be if you had diabetes or whatever. Yeah. If your kid has cancer, you can't find the best chemotherapy and radiation program appropriate for that cancer. We know what the treatment protocol is and you just seek that out like a missile. And you go for it and don't give up. I love what you said because you said, yeah, there's going to be another storm. And I I thought to myself, as you said that, I thought, but there's also going to be another sunrise, right? There's going right. to there's gonna be another non-storm day. There's going to be other days. There's going to be the time they go on the water slide. There are going to be the days. And let me tell you, got goosebumps just even hearing you say the water's like, because it's such a profound moment. It was such a priceless moment that every time people are like, how was your vacation? I'm like, it was amazing. We fought OCD. I didn't even prompt that. That was him just being the warrior he is. And I'm so incredibly proud. It's one of those things that it's, it's just hard to put words to. And so, yeah, you have those hard days and you have days where you're like, this didn't work. Maybe I messed it up. Maybe they messed it up. Maybe it's just not doing the thing. But you know what? It's all learning. We can think that something is a failure if it doesn't come out with the less reduced outcome at the end. But it's all learning. And so that experience, as hard as it was, is going to pave the way for the next experience to be a little easier. And so we continue to fight the hard fight. And I, I love that. And so thank you so much for taking your time today, Kim. This was such a treat. And I just appreciate all of your openness and your vulnerability. Thank you, Jack, for being such a heroic example of living your life, man. I love that. And how many other people are being impacted because you fought your OCD. That is incredible. Well, thank you for having me and thank all the donors that have given to us and trust us to do good work for this community. And thank you to Natural Light that supports us through the Fearless Collection. If you haven't seen it, please go to Natural Light Less Fearless and check out the collection. It's a product line created to educate, empower, and reduce the stigma of anxiety disorders. And they give a portion back to Jack Mental Health of the proceeds back to us to support our initiatives. And so we couldn't do this without an incredible community of support. And we really thank you 
from the bottom of our heart for having us on today and yeah. supporting what we do. Absolutely. We're all family here. We're all connected and doing what we can to see our loved ones thrive. And it's it's honestly, it's my pleasure. Also, so glad you brought up natural life because I love natural life. I'm a little bit of a boho, uh, a little Scandi boho style girl, but I love their products and their fearless collection is really inspiring. Talks about facing fears, talks about hope. It's encouraging and it's really great. So we'll put links to all of that and to Jack and McJay on the blog for this episode. And I'm just, I'm really excited to share this with everyone. So thanks again, Kim. Thank you so much. Thank you for that. Okay, fam, how great has this been? I told you, right? Kim is an incredible person, and the way in which she has not only come alongside Jack in his treatment and recovery, but how she's showing up and building awareness for others, it's absolutely amazing. She's a true hero indeed. So make sure you hop on over to OCDFamilyPodcast.com and this episode's blog post for more info on Kim, Jack Mental Health Advocacy, to find out more about the next Spanish-speaking BTTI, that's the Behavioral Therapy Training Institute, that Puerto Rico visit that's coming up for the Latin American study, all of that. I'm going to have the information linked there on the blog. Also, I followed up with Kim to clarify about that scholarship program that she shared about in terms of accessing treatment. I asked her who all was eligible to apply, and she mentioned that Jack MHA is able to offer those scholarships with licensed therapists who are part of that program. So what that means is if you're a licensed therapist practicing for now in the United States, you can reach out to Jack MHA and see how you can participate in that access to care program. And then as scholarships are available and funds are raised, those scholarships can be provided through Jack MHA. Now, for the fall here, the scholarships have pretty much been exhausted, but fundraising is a continued effort. And so she encourages folks to check back quarterly to see what can be done and how Jack MHA can help if possible. Also, maybe you're moved and you're like, I want to be able to get back. This is so amazing. Like I said, those fundraising goals are a continued effort that help supply access and resources to folks that can't afford it. So you can check out Jack MHA and see how can you partner? How could you make a donation? How could you make a gift? Also, don't forget, if you buy from the Fearless Collection over at Natural Life, not only are you getting amazing quality products, but you're also giving back to the OCD family community and those suffering from anxiety disorders. Oh, but wow, what a great time of learning and really feeling inspired by Kim, knowing that we're not alone. You know, Kim and I discussed this idea of the mama bear. And I think whether you're a mom, a dad, a grandma, an auntie, an uncle, a foster parent, we can jive with these mentalities of how we want to protect our young, our cubs. And this made me think, because bear, mama bear, sure, in a roundabout way, about the book Going on a Bear Hunt by Michael Rosen. Now, my kids are still young enough that we have a copy or two of this book around the house, and the cadence and sing-songy nature of the book, along with all the ripe opportunities for acting out different rhythms and beats and creating fun, interactive experiences, all the 
functional language. I mean, there are like so many wonderful things captured in this book. But what I love even more than its metrical structure and functional language is the message that it presents. So for those unfamiliar with this title, it's a harrowing tale of going on a bear hunt (laughs) where you're going to, in theory, catch a big one. You see, it's a beautiful day and you're not scared until, uh uh-oh, an obstacle is in your way. Be it grass, long wavy grass, or a cold and deep river, maybe even mud, obstacles are going to come along. But here's the deal, fam. This is the catch. When you meet these obstacles, you can't go over it. Mm -mm. And you can't exactly go under it. It doesn't work either. What we find is you have to go through it. The obstacles in life will vary. The fear will vary. But the only way to get around is to go through. And so when it comes to OCD, oh, that can feel really, really scary. And if we take that a step further, the thought of us going through it with our cubs, our kiddos, our loved ones, it makes all the sense in the world why we would want to avoid or do whatever we could to make that easier. But it's not just this battle, y'all. Like Kim said, there's going to be battles. And some of the battles you're going to be like, I lost that battle. And that can be discouraging. But losing a battle does not equal losing the war. And we just have to go through it. There are going to be battles we win. We've got to go through it. So learning and knowing that we're here, we're in the trench, y'all. And uh, this is mud, ooey-gooey mud. (laughs) Or this is a cold, dark river. Splishing and splashing and splashing our way through. We're here. Our loved ones are here. You're here. Kim's here. I'm here. Our Jacks, they're here. And the fact is, family, that while, yes, we're going through it, we're not alone. So for today's intrusive thought segment, which is the application segment of the show, where we really try to think of different ways that we can apply some learning from what we discussed today, I want you to look around and I want you to take in who's in your trench. Is it just you or just your loved one? Maybe that's all you can see. But I promise you, fam, we're all in it. We're going through it. And sometimes I think we can get so focused on how we are going to get out of it that we miss that we can't go over it and we can't go under it and we can't go around it. We just really need to go through it. On the other side of fear, there's freedom. So if it's lonely in your trench, think about how you can do a roll call and find your tribe. At the very least, I'm here, y'all. Hey. (laughs) But you know, it's funny because we're the OCD family community. And you know what's funny about bears, actually? Bears in and of themselves are kind of loner animals. They like to live the secluded, solitary life. Except when it comes to mothers with their cubs or (laughs) bears that are mating. So it can feel lonely. We can feel isolated. But the family community, the partners, the lovers, the spouses, the family is the exception. A mama bear would do anything for their cub. We talked about this. Kim and I talked about this. So finding your tribe, this tribe, the OCD family community tribe of partners, parents, children, you name it, we're meant. No matter how lonely 
isolated, solitary it may feel, we're meant for our pack, this pack, and we're meant to fight for and with each other. So we can't go over it. We can't go under it. But we're here going through it. And on the other side is another beautiful day. So find your pack, fam. Because we're on this bear hunt. But we're also better together. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing's as family like Kim Vincenti, the type of mama I aspire to be. That's right, I went there. And you can too at OCDFamily.